It's great to see you today. It's a notable day for the church family. As you're probably now aware, our traditional worship service has moved down to the gym because in the month of June, we're starting our renovation and begin work on our worship center down the hallway and begin to expand our children's building. And so it's an exciting time for the North Fort Worth Baptist Church. I'm glad that you chose to be with us on this special day. But as the video indicates, we're also starting a new series, a series that we've entitled, I Have Questions. I don't know anyone who's serious about life that from time to time doesn't have a question that crosses their their mind, even as followers of Jesus, questions about faith or morality, about what to do when you look at different life circumstances. And so through the month of May, I invited you to submit questions for consideration. And over the course of June and July, we're gonna begin to look at those questions together so that we can consider some answers, I pray, that will be a help to you. Now that said, through the series, I wanna promote resources too, because as we look at questions, I wanna admit, you know, in a 30 minute, 35 minute emphasis, I can't address everything that maybe is on your mind. And so as I can promote resources, I wanna do that. And I wanna start the series by mentioning two online resources. Uh, the first is a website entitled Got Questions. Now, I've mentioned this website in, in the past, but I bring it back to your attention. It's at www.gotquestions.org. And they claim to have answered over 570,000 questions that people have submitted. And they've compiled quite a library of topics and questions that I would refer you to. Because if I don't address the question that you have, maybe they already have. And you can look at it and think about it. And I hope you'll take advantage of the resource. The other one is uh, Christianity Explored. is the second website I would mention to you. Its web address is christianityexplored.org. And what I like about this one, for those of you that don't like to do a lot of heavy reading, uh, they have a, a link on their webpage that takes you to some videos where in about a three or four minute stretch, they'll address many of the tough questions, the hard questions that some of us have. And so if you like to watch a video, you wanna find some answers, go to christianityexplored.org and I think that might be a resource uh, that you wanna take advantage of. But this morning, I want to begin to address the questions that you submitted. Uh, We promoted it, we created a link on our webpage for those questions uh, to be uh, posed and starting this morning and stretching through the month of July, we're gonna try to address as many of those questions as possible. Now, that said, let me say on the front end that it's important as we begin this series that we really understand how we're going to find our answers. I mean, honestly, what is the source for our answers? Am I going to simply going to take a poll on Facebook or try to create some hashtag on Twitter that's going to answer the question? I mean, where are we going to turn in order to find the answers that we have on our minds? Well, if you've attended here much at all, you'll not be surprised when I say to you, my intention is to address the questions based upon what the Bible says. Now, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe the Bible is a source of revelation, and so not surprisingly, through the course of the series, is a question is raised, I'm going to go to the Bible, I'm going to look at what the Bible says, and then with God's help, I pray, we'll be able to share some insight with you that perhaps 
may answer those questions. Now, maybe you're just recently have begun to attend and here you hear me claim we're going to go to the Bible as our authority and, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, why? I mean, why the Bible? I mean, why not just kind of take a poll or kind of conduct a survey or why the Bible as compared to some other religious writing? And so I think it might be beneficial as we start the series just to lay a foundation of why I'm going to be turning to the Bible as a source of authority. Now, with that said, I want to also promote one more resource. It's a little book entitled, Why Trust in the Bible? The book is written by Greg Gilbert. Uh, you can get it online for all of $11. So if you have questions along, why should you take the Bible seriously? This would be worth your time. Go to Amazon, order it. You'll be able to read through it. Now, what you'll find beneficial is in the book, what he tries to do is address a lot of the skeptical questions ha people have about the Bible. I mean, why should we accept the credibility of what you read in the pages of a Bible in 2019? I mean, how do we know that it's been passed on accurately? How do we know that the writers themselves are trustworthy? I mean, why should you trust the Bible? I would recommend this book to you as a resource. It will answer those questions, even if you've not yet committed yourself to follow Jesus and you wonder about the Bible, why should you take it seriously? Wouldn't it be worth an hour and a half of your time, $11 of your money to read through this and see if it doesn't point to some, some basic answers that will encourage you to take the Bible seriously? And so I mentioned that is a resource, but I come back to the, the earlier question, why the Bible? Why should I spend the next nine weeks taking you to passages of scripture to address the questions that you have. Well, let me begin by answering that question by emphasizing that the Bible recommends itself to us. There are claims in scripture that seem to suggest that what we have in the pages of the Bible is something more than the ideas of men, something more than the musings of men. Let me give you a, a Bible passage that indicates that in a practical way. It's found in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy, just to remind those of you that like to understand a little bit of the background of a book, is, is actually one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, one of the more well-known followers of Jesus. And he writes 2 Timothy at the very end of his life. In fact, because of his faith in Jesus, he's about to die a martyr's death. And he kind of sees that coming, and he's writing to a young man that he has mentored. Timothy was his name, and he's trying to emphasize some things with Timothy that would be helpful to him. And as a part of that, he, he reminds Timothy of the value of the Bible or the value of Scripture. And he even explains just how, I think, unique Scripture is. I'm reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what the apostle says. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, that's how the English Standard Version translates the verse. Some other translations say that all Scripture is inspired by God. What's fascinating is this translation, breathed out, is the more descriptive translation of the Greek word that's found in the original text. It, it is emphasizing that what we have in Scripture is actually something that God himself has breathed out. 
for our benefit. It's something that God has manifest, something that God has revealed. And Paul highlights the impact of that. He says, because this is true, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, one of the questions someone submitted, and all the questions, by the way, were anonymous, was, well, why was the Bible written? That's a a practical question. Paul answers it. He says, God has breathed out this revelation so that we would benefit, so that ultimately we would be the complete men and women that the Creator intended for us to be. This scripture has been given so that in a real way we can discover ourselves as God desired. Now, obviously, for that to happen, we realize that the Bible primarily reveals God to us. He reveals who God is. He reveals how God has acted in love to bring us into relationship with himself. And so, God has breathed out Scripture so that we might discover ourselves as God the Creator desired. And so we come to this passage and Paul says, you should read scripture because it comes from God. We say, well, how did that work? We know that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there were probably somewhere over 40 different biblical writers who wrote over a span of some estimate from 1,400 years to 1,800 years. I mean, how did God breathe out this revelation? Well, you may be intrigued to know the Apostle Peter describes that in a sense. Last week, we finished a series in the little letter of Peter, 2 Peter. I'll take you back to it to listen to something that the Apostle says about Scripture in particular. In verse 20, listen to what he writes. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For... No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now, what Peter's focusing on primarily are the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he's saying, now, these biblical writers didn't just develop this on their own. It's, like they, it's not like they said, well, I think I'll, I'll write this. No, he says instead that it's something more than the will of man. In fact, but men spoke from God... Notice, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what you may not know in the Old Testament, some estimate that there are somewhere between 200, 350 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, all of which were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, let that settle in. There is a miraculous element to the Bible. If... If the biblical writers could predict accurately what would happen, doesn't that seem to suggest that there's something there that needs to be taken seriously? But what Peter is saying, when these prophets are pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament, predicting what would be, he says it wasn't their own writing. But according to Peter's language, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that is mysterious, but realize what he's describing. 
is that God himself, in some spirit, spiritual way, imparted to these writers an understanding of what they should write. And if you really think about it, that makes perfect sense because if we have over 40 biblical writers, you'll notice that they write with a different vocabulary, different personalities, and those elements are maintained in their, in their various writings. You see this writer from that writer based on even how they write. But what's significant is Peter says what happened is God so f- made his presence known to them inwardly by his spirit. It says he, he was carrying them along so that what they wrote became more than their words. What they wrote actually became, a very re- became the revelation of God. For us to hear, for us to read. In other words, God breathed out into them so that they could write the message that needed to be heard. Pretty remarkable, if you think about it. Now, I know you look at that and say, well, isn't Peter talking about the Old Testament? And wasn't Paul talking about the Old Testament? I mean, what about the New Testament? Well, Peter wasn't done. If you have your Bible still open or if you want to find it on your phone, look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord a salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, Concerning the wisdom, now notice this, given to him. Now, if you're not a real familiar with the New Testament, the Apostle Peter is one of the more, or to me, the Apostle Paul is one of the more noticeable writers of these letters in the New Testament. He wrote extensively, and his writings are in our Bible. But what you should realize, what Peter is saying is what Paul wrote, it was imparted to him. Just like in the Old Testament prophets, that it's as if God was carrying him along by the Spirit. Peter wasn't done. He adds in verse 16, and as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, would you agree with Peter there? Those of you that have read some of Paul's writings, there are occasions where you're scratching your head, and Peter admits, sometimes I'm a little confused. But listen to what he then adds. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. If I follow what Peter just said, he has just elevated the writings of Paul to the level of Scripture, hasn't he? He, in essence, is saying what was true of the prophets of old, the Spirit carried them along so that they did not write the will of man, but really revealed the the heart of God. He says of Paul, some people don't understand everything he writes, and so they try to twist it even as they do the other Scriptures. So from Peter's perspective, what we have in the New Testament writings is the same as what we have in the Old. It's a revelation. It's something that God has breathed out to us. And so why the Bible? I would say, well, the Bible seems to argue for itself. 
we need to take it seriously. But maybe you say, well, well, okay, that's fine. It's a sacred text. Why not some other sacred text? I mean, why not the Quran? Doesn't Islam claim to have a revelation from God? I mean, why should I think the Bible is the source of authority? Maybe I should allow the writings of Muhammad to be the source of authority. Now, I, I single the Quran out in particular because two of the questions that were submitted by two different individuals involved, involved Islam, where you were wondering, okay, uh, as I understand what Islam teaches, how does this relate to, to where we are and who we are? One of the questions, if I can refer to it, is this. Is the name Allah referring to the same God that Christians worship? Do Muslims believe in the same God as us, but just have a different or incorrect belief that came from Muhammad as the false prophet? Now, that's a practical question. I mean, do the followers of, of Muhammad, do Muslims worship, in essence, the same God that we worship? They just have a distorted understanding. Now, what's fascinating is if you read the Quran, you know what the Quran would say? The Quran would claim that they worship the same God as the Christians and the Jews. That we are worshiping the same God. Uh, the word Allah is Arabic for the God. And they would say, that, as we understand it, we are all worshiping the same God. They would then explain, based upon the teachings of the Quran, that the problem is Christians have been corrupted in their thinking, and so they just need to be corrected. But a good Muslim would argue, we're worshiping the same God. And because of that, there are some Christians, if you go online and you look around, you'll have some Christians that will even say the same. Pope Francis traveled to the Arabian Peninsula this past February, and he made a statement that seemed to insinuate that Christians and Muslims are worshiping the same God. Now, I would argue otherwise. And the reason I say that, because if you understand what the New Testament in particular reveals, what the Bible teaches about who God is, we would realize that the Bible actually reveals the eternal God of the ages is mysterious and glorious in ways that are very distinctively different from us. In so much the case that God, who is, has revealed himself as Father, Son, Spirit. That there's a there's a glory and a majesty about who God is that he's revealed himself to us in these ways eternally. And that Jesus, as we talk about him, isn't just a man who lived. He's actually God incarnate. So that when we worship God, we worship the fullness of who God is. But a Muslim would say, no, Jesus is not God. He's a prophet sinless prophet, but he, he wasn't God. And so, do we worship the same God? No, if we allow the Bible to help us understand who God is, 
No, we, we might have things in similar. They say that God was the God who created Adam and Eve, that delivered Noah from the flood, that even brought Abraham to a point of prominence. But as you move further, you'll quickly discover that Islam teaches that God is so transcendent that he can never really be, be known. He's not personal. And yet we know as God came in flesh, he revealed to us that God is very personal. You can even speak to him as father. So to answer that question, no, we're not worshiping the same God in that sense. But another question affecting Islam I thought was also uh, would be helpful to address. Does the Muslim Quran really teach that you have to kill everyone who doesn't live by the Quran? Is that a part of their teaching? Well, if I may, let me just read a few verses from the Quran, just to maybe answer that question directly from their sacred text. I'm reading from the Quran, chapter 2, verse 191. It writes, and kill them, referring to unbelievers or idolaters. Wherever you find them, drive them out from whence they drove you out. And persecution is severer than slaughter, and do not fight with them at the sacred mosque until they fight with you in it. But if they do fight you, then slay them. Such is the recompense of the unbelievers. Or another reference in chapter 5, verse 33. The only reward of those who make war upon Allah and his messenger and strive after corruption in the land will be they, uh, in the land will be that they will be killed or crucified or have their hands and feet on alternate sides cut off, or will be expelled from the land, such will be their degradation in the world and in the hereafter. Still one other, and there are several additional verses I could read, but let me read just one more from chapter 9, verse 5. Then when the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, take them captive, besiege them, and prepare for them each ambush. But if they repent and establish worship and pay the poor due, then leave their way free. Lo, Allah is forgiving, merciful. So the question is, does the Quran teach that unbelievers or idolaters, must they be put to death? Technically, what the Quran teaches is that a person needs to either come under the authority of Allah, submit to it voluntarily. They don't necessarily have to embrace Allah, but they have to submit to Allah's authority. And if that's the case, then they will function in Muslim society and be to some degree protected. Or they can convert to Allah and be fully embraced as a part of Islam. Or if those two options are rejected by the individual, then they should be according to the Quran, put to death. Now, that's how their sacred writing addresses that issue. You should realize that there are various sects of Islam that take differing opinions on how to interpret Muhammad's words. Some would say, and these would be described as the more moderate Muslim, that when you read these passages in their Quran, that it has a historical context, and that Muhammad was simply addressing a historical moment in time, and it only affected the people of that time. But as they would then go on to argue, 
Islam is, is a religion of peace, and so we don't practice what the Quran teaches at those points. And I am certainly grateful that there are Muslims that might approach their scripture in that way, but we have to realize in many places around the globe, there are Muslims who absolutely believe that what Muhammad describes in the Quran is still applicable. So much so that Christianity is disappearing in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, wherever Christians are found. Those who take the Quran literally are putting those so-called unbelievers or idolaters to death. So how do you answer the question? Well, the Quran teaches that that would be an appropriate action. The issue is whether or not the follower of Muhammad would accept the authority of it as still present-day applicable. Now, as you look at the Quran, and then we come back to the earlier question, well, why not the Quran? Let me answer that question from the point of view of Scripture, the Bible. See, the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches, and he anticipated a day would come where there would be kind of competing ideas about Jesus, competing ideas about faith and religion. And listen to what he says. I'm reading in Galatians chapter 3. He's trying to, to give us a perspective that I think is helpful even uh, today. I, I said chapter 3 will be chapter 1. In verse 6, listen to what he writes. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ. See, they've been turning uh, their back on Paul and are turning, notice, to a different gospel. Now, in Paul's day, you had some people that were trying to impose the Jewish kind of uh, uh, religious code upon uh, those who've come to faith in Jesus, and they're really requiring them to become Jewish in their practices. And Paul's addressing that, and he says, now, when somebody comes to you and they're offering to you a, a different gospel that's different than what I've presented to you in Jesus, he says that's a problem. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, what is the gospel of Christ? Jesus died, rose again, ascended on high, so that whoever believes in him is immediately forgiven, and a relationship with God is eternally established. That's what Paul preached. But others are saying, yeah, you need to acknowledge Jesus, but you need to do this, 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 in order to really be saved. And Paul said, no, no, you, you, can't, you can't go along with that. He even goes in verse 8 to underscore just how serious this is. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I have to smile. Paul is saying, now listen, even if I change the message, curse me. Even if an angel shows up and says, here's the rest of the story, let that person be rejected. Now why is this pertinent? Well, if you understand the history of Islam, you need to realize almost 600 years after Jesus did everything that Jesus did, Muhammad claimed that the angel Gabriel appeared to him over a span of 23 years. 
And it's out of that interaction with Gabriel that the book of the Quran was written. So, if you consider what Paul's just described, Muhammad is actually doing what Paul warned you must watch out against. That even if some person claims an angel has revealed a new element, you reject that. And so, as a believer and follower of Jesus, I would realize I can't turn to the Quran for my answers because he has been deceived. Incidentally, those of you that have some familiarity with Mormonism in America today in 2019, Mormon churches are scattered all across our nation. You should know that the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, also claimed to be influenced by an angel who led him to discover some golden plates that became the basis of the religious writings for the Mormon church. Paul would say, you reject that outright. May they be accursed. So why do I say that we need to come to the Bible? Well, God has revealed to us an understanding of himself in a way that we can better understand ourselves and the world around us. I know, as I'm emphasizing that, certainly in today's culture, you're going to have a few people say, well, hold on, preacher. Why can't we just find the answers within ourselves? Why do we have to turn to any sacred writing? I mean, can I figure out for myself what's best for me? You got to know, there's an old German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche who would love to hear you say that. Now, Nietzsche wrote toward the end of the 1800s, I really like his mustache, pretty impressive. Um, you may know his name better by a phrase that's been attached to him. The phrase is, God is dead. Now, you should know in his writings, he wasn't claiming that God lived and then suddenly died. What he's trying to do philosophically is say, what people need to do is to throw off the dominating influences of religion. You need to consider God as dead, practically speaking. Why? Because God's holding you back. Nietzsche would say that Christianity is a slavish morality that's robbing you of your true identity. You need to throw that off and discover yourself. You need to discover the real you. You need to act on your desires. And as you overcome in a personal kind of way, then you can ascend in his language to be a, a superman of sorts because you're becoming the person you were actually meant to be. Now that's the ideas of Nietzsche from a hundred years ago. You not see that, the influences in our day, today? It's all about what you feel is right. It's all about discovering the true you? Now, do you not see the potential problem with this philosophy or rationale? I mean, if all of us are pursuing what we feel is right inwardly, what we feel is best for us, do you not see how that would potentially collide? And then who determines who actually is right? Who wins the day and says, this is acceptable and this is not acceptable? I mean, for that matter, what if I decided that wearing the color orange is criminal? 
As a child, I've always disliked the color orange, and all of the years of my life, I just thought that's just an inappropriate color. So anybody that wears orange should be put in jail. Now, I said that in the first service, and we had a woman wearing an orange dress on the second row. And I thought, ah, should have picked a, a more obscure color. But do you see the point? I mean, you would say that's absurd. Orange? Why would you suggest that that's wrong? But if I feel that it's wrong, if, if I don't want to see it, do you not understand? Don't I have the right? Or how about this? Have fun with this one. What if I, I said, I think a law needs to be passed that no one taller than five foot eight should be given any position of authority. You see, well, that's easy for you to say. You're under five foot eight. But I mean, why not? I mean, wouldn't that be better? I mean, people that are under five foot eight are prone to constantly look up, which I think kind of creates a disposition of humility and an understanding of God. I don't have a short man complex. I would say this. I don't understand why you have the big and tall stores. Where's the, the short and stocky stores? I mean, where, where are those stores? But we're laughing because we, we realize that's absurd. But do you realize then in a culture that basically is saying it's, it's primarily what you feel that determines right and wrong, do you not understand inevitably you're going to have a collision of ideas. You're going to create a chaos of sorts about morality. So, well, the remedy of that is you build consensus, right? You, you do your Facebook poll. You get a, a general idea. Well, collectively, we feel that. Well, going back to Nietzsche, if I may, he would have rejected that outright. He, he wanted you to throw off the influences of religion so that you would avoid the domination of the herd, you need to find your true self. But if all we're doing is exchanging the ideas of religion with the, the consensus of ideas, then once more, how do you know that any of those are right? Well, let me come back. I, I would suggest to you the Bible's the answer. See, if what we're doing is just turning within ourselves, we can't honestly know if what we say is right is better than what someone else says. But if we think about what the Bible teaches, you know what it teaches? That God created us and that he breathed out, he revealed things knowing who we are and how he fashioned us, you see. No one probably would argue if you come across someone who creates something, whether it's an electronic device or whatever it may be, you would expect that person to have the best understanding of how something functions, so much so that we accept the instructions that they send along with whatever we purchase. See, they know what's best, right? They created the thing, for goodness sake. Well, isn't that the claim of the Bible? God created us, has an understanding of us as creator that's unique, so much so that when he addresses various life issues, he does so uniquely from his perspective. So to me, the Bible really is entirely relevant. What, are you sure? I mean, why the Bible? Why are you so certain? Well, let me close by one final argument toward this end. 
If you really want to understand why I take the Bible as seriously as I do, again, I could point to various intellectual arguments, but I want to be personal. I view Scripture the way I do because I'm a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's kind of a, a you're creating a, a circular argument, but I came to hear the message of Jesus as the Son of God who died, rose again, and ascended so that I might have life, and I believed in him. And he has affected my life. Well, here's the deal. Jesus emphasizes the authority of Scripture. Did you know that? Those of you that have been reading the Gospel of John with us, or maybe you're into the Gospel of Mark now, have you noticed how Jesus describes Scripture? In Matthew 4, there's the scene of Jesus being tempted by the devil. And the devil's trying to pull Jesus away from God the Father's plan. How does Jesus combat that? Those of you that have read it, do you remember? Yeah, he quotes Scripture. I mean, the first temptation involved him turning stones into bread. Again, uh, suggesting that the Father was, was in some way ignoring the needs of the Son. And, and Jesus responds by quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And I'm struck by what Jesus says. Listen to how he describes this. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Wow. From Jesus' perspective, the scriptures of old were a revelation from God. That's how he viewed it. And if I'm a believer and follower of Jesus, then probably I should trust Jesus' perspective on that. You would think. But still more. You say, well, what about the New Testament? You know, when the apostle John introduces us to Jesus in his gospel, he does so before Jesus was assigned the name of Jesus. That happened at Bethlehem in his birth. And it's insightful how John then describes Jesus prior to Bethlehem. Listen to what he says in John 1, verses 1 and following. In the beginning was the Word. Now, that's his reference to Jesus, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, John explains, were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Stay with me. When John points to Jesus, he initially refers to him as the Word. As if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God himself. He is the incarnation. He is the final word from God to us in order to bring meaning and understanding to life. Jesus understood that about himself. In John 14, he talks to the disciples. He says, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Now, Philip's there, and he's scratching his head. Well, I mean, we don't know the way. How, how does this all work? I mean, Jesus, why don't you show us the Father? And Jesus was astonished by Philip. Have I been with you so long? 
Philip, that you don't realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And then he says, and I'm reading from chapter 14 and in verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus is suggesting then to us that what he said is the actual revelation of God himself. So why the Bible? I'm convinced that it is the actual revelation that God has breathed out for our benefit. So for the remainder of the series, this is what I want us to do. I want us to allow Scripture, the Bible, to be our source of truth. That when we look at the various questions, we want to allow the Bible to speak to that, don't we? You've offered some fascinating questions. Some deal with morality, some deal with politics, world religions. Where's our source? Well, the Bible will be, from my approach, the ultimate source, the source of truth. Think of it this way. Imagine the Bible is, is the light in the room. We don't know how to make sense of this. The Bible helps us to see clearly. David described it in Psalm 119 that God's word is a lamp unto his feet, a light unto his path. That's what it needs to be for us. When we look at life's questions, whatever they are, we come to the Bible as a source of authority. And then we, we can see better. So, well, I don't know where to find Bible verses that deal with the topics of my, or the questions of my life. Let me give you one more online resource. It's called Bible Study Tools. You can go to BibleStudyTools.com. Without having to pay a dollar, you have access to concordances where you can look up topics to the questions that you have, commentaries. Now, the commentaries are older commentaries. But the point is, we have no excuse not to turn to the Bible to find the answers that we, we seek. It's there. And so, as we move forward, as followers of Jesus, let's allow the Bible to be our source of truth. And as we do that, this is what I want us to then how we apply that. We begin to read, we begin to reflect, and we begin to pray. All of those descriptive acts. Now, the reading goes without saying. The reflecting takes a little bit more time, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes the questions you're going to raise are going to involve several passages of Scripture, Bible discussions, and so you put all of that on the table and you begin to reflect on it. Maybe the reflection includes you asking someone, uh, another believer you trust, to talk with you about these passages too. You reflect on it. You just don't jump forward. You look at it, see it for what it is. But please, especially as you're talking to another person, be sure to be praying about it. Because at the end of the day, what we need is the wisdom of God, a wisdom that God is willing to help us discover as we ask, as we read, as we reflect. Final thought, though. We're not looking for answers as answers unto themselves. 
Let me always bring you back to who we finally are. We are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. At least I hope that's true of you. So that when I'm looking at a question, I'm not looking for just an answer. I want to consider the answer in relationship to following Jesus Christ, right? See how that added consideration, I think, gives me a greater depth of appreciation. At the end of the day, Jesus, I just want to follow you. Amen? Next week, we're going to begin to deal with the question of guilt. Someone submitted the question, well, how do you deal with a guilt that you just can never move beyond? Come back next week. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for the attentiveness of those that are present, for the opportunity to begin this new series and where it will take us. But hear us at the front end say, Dear God, we want to discover your wisdom. We want to open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word. We seek a counsel that's greater than our, even our individual desires or feelings. We want to know you, your ways, so that we can continue to follow Jesus in ways that result in a greater impact in our lives. So, Father, move us into this journey expectantly, knowing that you're going to meet us in the midst of these questions, and we're going to discover wisdom from you. And for that, we're grateful. Speak to our hearts even now as we would move toward the end of this service. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.